Just a week ago, the headlines in the press uh, reported that four girls were missing in the Cairngorms. Uh, the report said, and I quote, a search is underway for four teenage girls who were overdue from a trek in the Cairngorms. The alarm was raised on Friday night when the youngsters who were on a gold Duke of Edinburgh award expedition, believed to be aged between 14 and 17, didn't arrive at a campsite uh, near Loch Lagan. They were seen late on Friday morning walking on that planned route, but the search was hampered by poor weather overnight. It's hoped conditions will improve. Members of the Cairngorm Mountain Rescue Team and an RAF Mountain Rescue Team are looking for the girls in the area near Kinlochlegan. The RAF also plans to send a helicopter from Lossiemouth to help the search. Well, you'd be glad to know if you saw the news that thankfully the next morning uh, the search was successful and the girls were found safe and well. However, not all such searches have a happy ending. A few months previously, you may recall again, two young student climbers from Aberdeen University were discovered frozen to death just a mile short of the Cairngorm ski lift. And if you live in Scotland, you'll know that on numerous occasions throughout the year, especially in winter, mountain rescue teams are called to respond to such emergencies as they embark on life and death missions. And today as we continue our series in Luke's Gospel, which we call Good News, a Great Joy for All People, we discover what I want us to see is that Jesus sends out his followers on what we could call a life and death mission. So look again with me at the account in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. It will help to have a Bible in front of you as we follow through the story and the account that Luke gives us. Page 1041. And if you've been with us in this series or you know Luke's Gospel, you'll know that at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus sent out the twelve disciples on a similar mission. Now he sends out a larger number on a larger mission. You can find that in Luke 9, 1-9, the mission of the twelve. If you look at the footnote in the NIV, uh, you'll realise there's an awful lot of controversy uh, about how many people were sent out. Was it 70 or was it 72? And I won't bore you with all the scholastic details other than to say it's not absolutely clear what the number was. It was either 70 or 72. But your theological security does not hang on the answer. Uh, we're also not sure if there's any significance in the number 70 or 72 and all sorts of opinions have been given about this, the so most likely, if there is any significance, uh, is that uh, that number were the number of nations uh, that were listed in Genesis 10, and the Jewish people believed that there were 70 or 72 nations in the world. So while the mission of the Twelve was specifically to the people of Israel, you can find that in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, this is a larger mission to the wider world, as the, these uh, 72, we'll call them, we'll stick with 72 for the moment, all right? Say so me keep saying 70 or 72. Um, uh, these 72 were sent over the Jordan River to what was called the Transjordan, a region inhabited by those who the Jews tended to look down on. But while the scope was wider, uh, this larger group of missionaries, like the 12, were sent out two by two. It was a larger mission, but with similar instructions 
and also with similar urgency. Jesus sends them out into a hostile environment. He said, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. He tells them that they're to travel light with no excess baggage, no purse, no bag, no sandals. Probably doesn't mean they travel barefoot. It just means they want to take a spare set of footwear. They're also told, somewhat strangely, do not greet anyone on the road. Uh, And if you've always lived in Scotland or the West, you probably don't understand that, but if you've lived in different parts of the world, as we did, for example, in Africa, greetings are long and protracted business uh, with all sorts of social etiquette. When we lived in Nigeria in the village, anybody who came to greet, you were talking about 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, you greeted the person in the particular language you worked in, you said, which means, how are you? I'm cool, I'm fine. And then you said, how are your children? How's your animals? How's your chickens? How's your goats? And it was like a game of ping pong that went on for quite a long time. And if you met people on the road and did this every time, you'd never get to the village on your mission. So that's what it means when it says, do not greet anyone on the road. It doesn't mean they were being necessarily rude. Like mountain rescue teams, they don't stop uh, and indulge in small talk. They've got a mission. That's what we want to focus on this evening. Uh, When they arrive in a place, Jesus tells them, don't worry about the accommodation. Find the first house where you're welcomed and stay there. Don't keep flitting around from house to house. If you've ever stayed on trips with people, the more houses you go to, again, the more time you have to spend socializing. Just focus where you are. They're not to quibble about food and drink worrying about whether this food is ceremonially clean for Jews to eat. They're to eat what is put before them. Again, when I was a missionary, we were told, where he leads me, I will follow. What he feeds me, I will swallow. Well, it's the same kind of principle. (laughs) And finally, they have no qualms about receiving food and accommodation for the worker deserves his wages. They're working for the kingdom of God and it is right and proper that they should receive at least basic accommodation and food. Now, as we saw again, if you're here, when Colin spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, the instruction of specific instructions for this specific situation, they're not universally applied. In other words, if you're going to be a missionary, it doesn't mean you can't take a spare pair of shoes with you. However, while the instructions may change, the urgency behind them remains the same. The Lord Jesus Christ says to his followers, Daniel already quoted it, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Uh, One of the things we pray for as a church is for more workers that our mission force will increase. And that doesn't just mean people out in the world. It means people serving the Lord in all sorts of places, within a local church like this, within a church like Nidri. Uh, It was great being there this morning and seeing the folk that the Lord is bringing in. My anticipation with God's help is that a lot more people are going to come in with a new pastoral team. We have John laid a great foundation. Now we need to build on that. And some of you maybe need to respond to that challenge and get out there and get involved. Uh, with the needy people of Nidri and the needy people of Edinburgh as well. Now, I don't want to spend any more time on these instructions. If you want to know more, listen to what Colin preached on, on Luke 9 about it. What I want to do in the time that remains to us is to focus on the contrasting effects of their mission. The contrasting effects on those who hear the message. Uh, let me summarize what I'm going to talk about and then I'll talk about it. Uh, first of all, the contrast is this. 
those who receive the message they bring will enjoy wonderful privileges. They'll experience God's salvation, which is life itself, eternal life, which never ends. In contrast, as you look at the passage in front of us, those who reject the message face terrible penalties, for they'll experience God's judgment, which is death, eternal alienation from him. It is indeed a mission of life and death. And the reason for this is because those who reject or receive the message are not simply receiving or rejecting the messengers, but they're rejecting the one who sent them. Look again at what Jesus says. The crucial issue is they're receiving or rejecting him. Look what he says in verse 18. He who listens to you, listens to me. He who rejects you, rejects me. But he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. And that's why I've called it a life and death mission. It is the same kind of mission that is still being carried out by folk like Danny, by the team that went to Malawi, by those who go out with the good news of Jesus Christ through Christianity Explored. People are confronted with the reality of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ, and how they respond is a matter of life and death. If you're not a Christian this evening, if you've not yet responded, then it's a matter of life and death. Whether you enjoy the wonderful privileges that come from knowing Christ, or you experience ultimately the terrible penalties for rejecting him. It is a serious issue. So, let's just look more closely at them, uh, these two contrasts. First of all, the wonderful privileges enjoyed by those who receive Jesus. Uh, The disciples are given a message to proclaim. It's actually the same message that Jesus proclaimed when he started his ministry. If you read right, right back at the beginning of the Gospels. The kingdom of God is near you. Probably more accurately translated, the word is near you, can literally mean the kingdom of God has arrived among you. It's come to you. God's promised kingdom has come with the promised king, who is Jesus. So those who welcome the king and become part of his kingdom receive the blessings through King Jesus. Notice what they are offered, what we are offered. First of all, they're offered God's peace. The messengers are told, when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. Now, peace was the normal greeting in those days for Jews, represented by Hebrew word shalom, which means wholeness in every aspect. What Danny's been talking about, physical, spiritual, material. But King Jesus has come to offer a greater peace, peace with God. It is a peace that ultimately you will achieve when he dies on the cross, bringing peace between rebel human beings and God himself. And now ahead of time, that peace is offered. It's extended to people. It is signified by Jesus saying, heal the sick, act in my name, show the signs of the kingdom. And so linked in with this is God's power. Although it's not mentioned by Luke in these instructions, uh, the messengers we discover not only heal the sick, but they're able to cast out demons in the name of Jesus as they report back to him. Look at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now, do you see the picture? As the kingdom of God is being spread by the messengers of the kingdom, so those who've been held in the grip of Satan, particularly those overtly held in the grip of demonic powers, the power is being loosed. 
It's a bit like, you know, that, that wonderful picture in C.S. Lewis's book, you know, the land of which in the wardrobe. And when, when, when they hear that Aslan the lion has arrived, uh, the deep grip of winter begins to thaw out and changes afoot. And so as the messengers go out with their message, people are being freed from the power of the enemy. One commentator writes, Satan is a conquered enemy. And where action is taken in the name of Jesus the conqueror, victory is assured. And so Jesus responds, he says, when they report back, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. But wonderful though this is, Jesus says you're not to make that your focus of joy and certainly of pride. Rather, Jesus reminds them of a far greater privilege they enjoy, which should be their focus, God's promise. However, he says, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We don't have time to look at it. It's a wonderful picture that runs through the Bible like a thread. This idea that those who belong to God, God records their names. They're written in the book of life, Old Testament New Testament, you get this wonderful picture that God keeps a record of those who belong to him. And the greatest privilege in life is to belong to God's kingdom, to be part of God's family, to have that assurance that your names are written in heaven. We all take great pride in all sorts of things that we belong to. Many of us are proud Scots, or even proud English, but whatever it might be. We belong to certain things that we, we have an affinity with and we take delight in. But the greatest privilege of all we have, if you belong to Christ, God promises your name is written in heaven. And that puts everything else into perspective. And what makes it all the more amazing and wonderful is that this is given to the undeserving and the unexpected. So Jesus tells his disciples, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. You can't work out these things by human wisdom or learning. No, Jesus says the only way you can know them is by divine revelation. Verse 22, all things have been committed to to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Very strange thing, isn't it? Uh, when you become a Christian, nice to hear Kirsty sharing about how she came to faith in Christ. And uh, one of the great things involved in pastoral work and in, in gospel work of any kind is seeing people come to understand who Jesus is. Because you realise it's not your eloquence uh, that has convinced them. You see people who just say, well, I can't see that at all. And then one day you see them and they suddenly say, well, I can see it now. I understand who Jesus is. See, it's what God does. And, and you don't need to be qualified. You know, he doesn't say, well, you'll need a degree to understand this. That doesn't mean that God is against degrees, qualifications. But it doesn't qualify you for the kingdom of God. It's when God breaks into your life and shows you who Jesus is reveals to you who the Son is, who the Father is, and suddenly you see it and, and, and you grasp it. Now, if you're not a Christian this evening, you're probably still in the dark about this and think, what is he talking about? That's the point. You need to understand who Jesus really is. And so Jesus, reminding his followers of these tremendous privileges, says, look, 
You are the most privileged people in history. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but didn't see it. To hear what you hear, but didn't hear it. And and he's thinking of all those great people in the Old Testament, the ones we sang about. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, King David, all the Psalms and the prophecies. And they're all looking forward and longing for that day. They were longing for the day of the Messiah. In fact, sadly the Jewish people still pray that they might be born to see the coming of the Messiah. But Jesus said that day has arrived. The most momentous day in human history. We live in what the Bible calls the day of grace. The day of God's favour. What other people long for. Human history is divided into B.C. and A.D. We live in A.D. Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. It's the inauguration of this age which the prophets and kings long to experience. The coming of God's kingdom with the arrival of God's king. The most momentous events in human history. The wonderful privileges. Amazing privileges that are enjoyed by those who receive Jesus and acknowledge him as the king, who bow the knee, submit to him. Before I move on, let me ask you, do you enjoy those privileges? Do you know what it is to have peace with God? Do you know what it is to know God's power in your life? You might not be influenced by demons. You may be, increasingly in our society these days, but the power of sin in your life, has it been broken? Or are you a slave to sin? Do you know what it is to be freed from the power of sin? Do you know what it is to have the promise, the assurance of eternal life that your name is written in heaven? These are wonderful privileges enjoyed by those who receive Jesus. But there is a flip side to it. You see, this is why it's a matter. That's the life. It's a matter of life and death. Because if this is the most momentous days in human history... And Jesus is the most important person and the king who has been promised throughout history and the one who will bring in his final kingdom at the end of time. Then to reject the king is a matter of the utmost seriousness. So we turn sadly from the wonderful privileges enjoyed by those who receive Jesus to the terrible penalties faced by those who reject Jesus. Here's the other side of the mission of the 72. They're in a life and death mission. For some people it means life. For other people it means death. So while those who accept the peace terms offered by the messengers enjoy God's peace, those who reject them face the consequences of their own choice. And while the Lord Jesus has been emphasising that only God can reveal these things, that God is sovereign, he doesn't neglect human responsibility. Look what he says. To them, when you go into a town, verse 10 and 11. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet we will wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's a symbolic act, of course. You have, you have chosen to reject the message that we bring. You have chosen to reject the king that we offer to you. You've chosen to turn your back on the peace terms and therefore we dissociate ourselves from you. We even wipe off the dust from our feet because the kingdom of God has arrived and you refuse to bow the knee. And because it's such a momentous moment in history, Jesus says, you face greater judgment. 
These are terrible words, verse 12. Jesus says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. The name Sodom would have sent a chill down the spine of any Jew, any other person probably, in the ancient world. For Sodom was a byword for the depths of depravity and wickedness that caused God to wipe out that city. No longer exists. And its associated town, Gomorrah, off the map during the time of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. Now, here's Jesus talking to people, some of whom were descendants of Abraham, facing a worse fate than Sodom on the day of judgment. You can imagine how shocking this is. We don't know the details, but it is clear, it is clear that there are greater degrees of judgment. And Jesus goes on to describe the fate of three towns in Israel. Chorazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum. But why, they may well have asked, why, why this great judgment? And Jesus gives the answer, he says, you will suffer greater judgment than Sodom and wicked cities from the past like Tyre and Sidon were two more cities that were wiped out for their wickedness because you have rejected greater evidence. Look at verses 13 to 15. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you'll go down to the depths, the depths of Sheol, the depths of hell. We don't know much about where Chorazin and Bethsaida were. But we know a lot, of course, about Capernaum. It was the home base that Jesus used for his ministry in Galilee. It was a place where people saw and witnessed amazing miracles from Jesus. And Jesus said, if the inhabitants, those wicked people in Tyre and Sidon, if they'd seen those miracles in their day, they'd have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Yet the people of Capernaum refused to repent in the face of compelling evidence and so Jesus says on the day of judgment they will face greater punishment than the citizens of Tyre and Sidon. If you know your history, you'll know that some of that judgment fell on Capernaum a few decades after Jesus spoke these words at the hands of the Roman legions. One writer comments, Jesus predicted the future humbling or death of the city. Today the deserted site of Capernaum bears eloquent, silent testimony to his prophecy. If you've ever been to Israel as I have, you can see the excavated site of Capernaum and visit it and see that it's no longer a viable, habitable place. But the future and final judgment of the citizens of Capernaum, as the future fate of the citizens of Edinburgh and all who reject Jesus, is still to come. There is a day of judgment coming, says Jesus. And if you reject the evidence before your eyes, you will suffer even a greater judgment than these wicked cities from the past because you've got more to base faith on. And so while Jesus was filled with joy in this passage, one of the few passages that talks about his joy, uh, because of what the Father has revealed to those who receive him, he's not filled with joy at the prospect of judgment on those who reject him. The word woe that's used there, it's not a curse. Jesus is not saying, woe to you. Literally a translation would be, alas, how sad, how tragic. 
how terrible it will be. It reveals the anguish of Jesus. Whoa. It reveals the anguish in the heart of God. As we come to a close this evening, let me speak again to those of you not Christians. The Bible reveals God is a God of compassion and mercy. He doesn't enjoy the death of the wicked. Rather, he says, why will you die? Turn from your sin. And he says to us today, my son offers you these amazing, wonderful privileges. Peace with me. Power the Holy Spirit in your life. The promise of heaven, eternal life. Why will you die? Why turn against it? He turns to you, as it were, with weeping and with sadness. As our Lord Jesus Christ wept over Jerusalem, his own city, and said, I just long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks in the face of incoming danger. Yet you would not. A savagery note, isn't it? To think of. He longs that we might turn from our sin, lay down our arms, submit to his gracious peace terms, that we might enjoy the wonderful privileges he offers instead of suffering the terrible penalties for rejecting him. So I plead with you this evening, you've not received Christ. Don't turn away from him. Turn to him. He's there with arms of love, the Father longing to welcome you back into his family. And so as we conclude this evening, the mission of these messengers of Jesus then, and those who still carry the message today, is not just a matter of life and death. It's not just a life and death mission. It is literally an eternal life and death mission. In the NIV application commentary, Daryl Bock writes, There should be no doubt, however, that eternal life and death are the issue when it comes to Jesus. Our ear has made it too easy to pass off religious opinion as if it were choosing flavours at an ice cream store. God is not so cold as to allow such important matters to be left to human whim. In offering his son, he has put the true life to death so that men and women can experience life. And in death, the true life has removed any obstacle that may stand in the way of relationship with God. An eternal life and death mission. Those issues are still being played out in our world today. They're being played out in this church today as we hear the good news of Jesus. Don't miss out on the greatest privilege of all of knowing the Father, of knowing the Son, of knowing Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Thank you that you sent him on a rescue mission, a life and death mission to live and to die and to be raised to life, to offer life to us. Lord, these are serious issues and so as we bow in your presence we pray that we may be those who do not reject the King, your King, Jesus, but receive him as our Lord and Saviour and King. And for those of us who enjoy those wonderful privileges, impress upon our hearts the seriousness of the mission that you call us to, to share with other people by word and deed these vitally important issues Issues of eternal life and death. 
and send us from here with a great assurance of the privilege we have of knowing you and of knowing Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.